Chapter Ten, Part One, of My Path to Atheism by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten, Part One, on the Nature and the Existence of God. It is impossible to those who study the deeper religious problems of our time to stave off much longer the question which lies at the root of them all. What do you believe in regard to God? We may controvert Christian doctrines one after another, point by point we may be driven from the various beliefs of our churches, reason may force us to see contradictions where we had imagined harmony, and may open our eyes to flaws where we had dreamed of perfection. We resign all idea of a revelation. We seek for God in nature only. We renounce forever the hope which glorified our former creed into such alluring beauty that at some future time we should verily see God, that our eyes should behold the King in his beauty, in that fairy land which is very far off. But every step we take onwards towards a more reasonable faith and a surer light of truth leads us nearer and nearer to the problem of problems, what is that which men call God? Not till theologians have thoroughly grappled with this question have they any just claim to be called religious guides. From each of those whom we honour as our leading thinkers, we have a right to a distinct answer to this question, and the very object of the present paper is to provoke discussion on this point. Men are apt to turn aside somewhat impatiently from an argument about the nature and existence of the deity, because they consider that the question is a metaphysical one which leads nowhere a problem the resolution of which is beyond our faculties, and the study of which is at once useless and dangerous. They forget that action is ruled by thought, and that our ideas about God are therefore of vast practical importance. On our answer to the question propounded above depends our whole conception of the nature and origin of evil, and of the sanctions of morality. On our idea of God turns our opinion on the much-disputed question of prayer, and, in fact, our whole attitude of mind towards life here and hereafter. Does morality consist in obedience to the will of a perfectly moral being, and are we to aim at righteousness of life, because in doing so we please God? Or are we to lead noble lives, because nobility of life is desirable for itself alone, and because it spreads happiness around us, and satisfies the desires of our own nature? Is our mental attitude to be that of kneeling or standing? Are our eyes to be fixed on heaven or on earth? Is prayer to God reasonable and helpful, the natural cry of a child for help from a father in heaven, or is it, on the other hand, a useless appeal to an unknown and irresponsible force? Is the mainspring of our actions to be the idea of duty to God, or a sense of the necessity of bringing our being into harmony with the laws of the universe? It appears to me that these questions are of such grave and vital moment that no apology is needed for drawing attention to them, and because of their importance to mankind I challenge the leaders of the religious and non-religious world alike, the Christians, theists, pantheists, and those who take no specific name, duly to test the views they severally hold. In this battle the simple foot-soldier may touch with his lance the shield of the knight, and the insignificance of the challenger does not exempt the general from the duty of lifting the gauntlet flung down at his feet. Little care I for personal defeat, 
if the issue of the conflict should enthrone more firmly the radiant figure of truth. One fault, however, I am anxious to avoid, and that is the fault of ambiguity. The orthodox and the free-thinking alike do a good deal of useless fighting from sheer misunderstanding of each other's standpoint in the controversy. It appears then to be indispensable in the prosecution of the following inquiry that the meaning of terms should be unmistakably distinct. I begin, therefore, by defining the technical terms of expression to be employed in my argument. The definitions may be good or bad, that is not material. All that is needed is that the sense in which the various terms are used should be clearly understood. When men fight only for the sake of discovering truth, definiteness of expression is specially incumbent on them, and, as has been eloquently said, the strugglers being sincere, truth may give laurels to the victor and the vanquished. Laurels to the victor, in that he hath upheld the truth, laurels still welcome to the vanquished, whose defeat crowns him with a truth he knew not of before. The definitions that appear to me to be absolutely necessary are as follows. Matter is used to express that which is tangible. Spirit, or spiritual, is used to express those intangible forces whose existence we become aware of only through the effects they produce. Substance is used to express that which exists in itself and by itself, and the conception of which does not imply the conception of anything preceding it. God is used to represent exclusively that being invested by the orthodox with certain physical, intellectual and moral attributes. Particular attention must be paid to this last definition because the term atheist is often flung unjustly at any thinker who ventures to criticise the popular and traditional idea of God, and different schools, theistic and non-theistic, with but too much facility, bandy about this vague epithet in mutual reproach. As an instance of this uncharitable and unfair use of ugly names, all schools agree in calling the late Mr. Austin Holyoke an atheist. And he accepted the name himself, although he distinctly stated, as we find in a printed report of a discussion held at the Victoria Institute, that he did not deny the possibility of the existence of God, but only denied the possibility of the existence of that God in whom the Orthodox exhorted him to believe. It is well thus to protest beforehand against this name being banded about, because it carries with it, at present, so much popular prejudice that it prevents all possibility of a candid and free discussion. It is simply a convenient stone to fling at the head of an opponent whose arguments one cannot meet, a certain way of raising a tumult which will drown his voice, and, if it have any serious meaning at all, it might be fairly used, as I shall presently show, against the most orthodox pillar of the orthodox faith. It is manifest to all who take the trouble to think steadily that there can be only one eternal and underived substance, and that matter and spirit must therefore only be varying manifestations of this one substance. The distinction made between matter and spirit is then simply made for the sake of convenience and clearness, just as we may distinguish perception from judgment, both of which, however, are alike processes of thought. Matter is, in its constituent elements, the same as spirit. Existence is one, however manifold in its phenomena. Life is one, however multiform in its evolution. 
as the heat of the coal differs from the coal itself so do memory perception judgment emotion and will differ from the brain which is the instrument of thought but nevertheless they are all equally products of the one sole substance varying only in their conditions it may be taken for granted that against this preliminary point of the argument will be raised the party cry of rank materialism because materialism is a doctrine of which the general public has an undefined horror but i am bold to say that if by matter is meant that which is above defined as substance then no reasoning person can help being a materialist the orthodox are very fond of arguing back to what they call the great first cause god is a spirit they say and from him is derived the spiritual part of man well and good they have traced back a part of the universe to a point at which they conceive that only one universal essence is possible that which they call god and which is spirit only but i then invite their consideration to the presence of something which they do not regard as spirit i e matter i follow their own plan of argument step by step i trace matter as they traced spirit back and back till i reach a point beyond which i cannot go one only existence substance or essence am i therefore to believe that god is matter only but we have already found it asserted by theists that he is spirit only and we cannot believe two contradictories however logical the road which led us to them so we must acknowledge two substances eternally existent side by side if existence be dual then however absurd the hypothesis there must be two first causes it is not i who am responsible for an idea so anomalous the orthodox escape from this dilemma by an assumption thus god to whom is to be traced back all spirit created matter why am i not equally justified in assuming if i please that matter created spirit why should i be logical in one argument and illogical in another if we come to assumptions have not i as much right to my assumption as my neighbour has to his why may he predicate creation of one half of the universe and i not predicate it of the other half if the assumptions be taken into consideration at all then i contend that mine is the more reasonable of the two since it is possible to imagine matter as existing without mind while it is utterly impossible to conceive of mind existing without matter we all know how a stone looks and we are in the habit of regarding that as lifeless matter but who has any distinct idea a mind pure example no clear conception of it is possible to human faculties we can only conceive of mind as it is found in an organization intelligence has no appreciable existence except as residing in the brain and as manifested in results the lines of spirits and matter are not one say the orthodox they run backwards side by side why then in following the course of these two parallel lines should i suddenly bend one into the other and on what principle of selection shall i choose the one i am to curve i must really decline to use logic just as far as it supports the orthodox idea of god and arbitrarily throw it down the moment it conflicts with that idea i find myself then compelled to believe that only one substance exists in all around me that the universe is eternal or at least eternal so far as our faculties are concerned since we cannot as someone has quaintly put it 
get to the outside of everywhere, that a deity cannot be conceived of as apart from the universe, pre-existent to the universe, post-existent to the universe, that the worker and the work are inextricably interwoven, and in some sense eternally and indissolubly combined. Having got so far, we will proceed to examine into the possibility of proving the existence of that one essence, popularly called by the name of God, under the conditions strictly defined by the orthodox. Having demonstrated, as I hope to do, that the orthodox idea of God is unreasonable and absurd, we will endeavour to discover whether any idea of God, worthy to be called an idea, is attainable in the present state of our faculties. The orthodox believers in God are divided into two camps, one of which maintains that the existence of God is as demonstrable as any mathematical proposition, while the other asserts that his existence is not demonstrable to the intellect. I select Dr. McCann, a man of considerable reputation, as the representative of the former of these two opposing schools of thought, and give the doctor's position in his own words. The purpose of the following paper is to prove the fallacy of all such assumptions, i.e. that the existence of God is an insoluble problem, by showing that we are no more at liberty to deny his being than we are to deny any demonstration of Euclid. He would be thought unworthy of refutation, who should assert that any two angles of a triangle are together greater than two right angles. We would content ourselves by saying, the man is mad, mathematically at least, and pass on. If it can be shown that we affirm the existence of deity for the very same reasons as we affirm the truth of any geometric proposition, if it can be shown that the former is as capable of demonstration as the latter, then it necessarily follows that if we are justified in calling the man a fool who denies the latter, we are also justified in calling him a fool who says there is no God, and in refusing to answer him according to his folly which, of course, is a very convenient one when you meet with an awkward opponent whom you cannot silence by sentiment and declamation. Again, in conclusion, we believe it to be very important to be able to prove that if the mathematician be justified in asserting that the three angles of a triangle are equal to two right angles, the Christian is equally justified in asserting not only that he is compelled to believe in God, but that he knows him and that he who denies the existence of the deity is as unworthy of serious refutation as he who denies a mathematical demonstration. Taken from A Demonstration of the Existence of God, a lecture delivered at the Victoria Institute, 1870, pages 1 and 2. Dr. McCann proves his very startling thesis by laying down as axioms six statements, which, however luminous to the Christian traditionalist, are obscure to the sceptical intellect. He seems to be conscious of this defect in his so-called axioms, for he proceeds to prove each of them elaborately, forgetting that the simple statement of an axiom should carry direct conviction, that it needs only to be understood in order to be accepted. However, let this pass. Our teacher, having stated and proved his axioms, proceeds to draw his conclusions from them, and, as his foundations are unsound, it is scarcely to be wondered at that his superstructure should be insecure. I know of no way so effectual to defeat an adversary as to beg all the questions raised, assume every point in dispute, call assumptions, axioms, and then proceed to reason from them. It is really not worth while to criticise Dr. McCann in detail. 
his lecture being nothing but a mass of fallacies and unproved assertions. Christian courtesy allows him to call those who dissent from his assumptions fools, and as these terms of abuse are not considered admissible by those whom he assails as unbelievers, there is a slight difficulty in answering Dr. McCann according to his deserts. I content myself with suggesting that they who wish to learn how pretended reasoning may pass for solid argument, how inconsequent statements may pass for logic, had better study this lecture. For my own part I confess that my folly is not, as yet, of a sufficiently pronounced type to enable me to accept Dr. McCann's conclusions. The best representation I can select of the second orthodox party, those who admit that the existence of God is not demonstrable, is the late Dean Mansell. In his Limits of Religious Thought, the Bampton Lectures for 1867, he takes up a perfectly unassailable position. The peculiarity of this position, however, is that he, the pillar of orthodoxy, the famed defender of the faith against German infidelity and all forms of rationalism, regards God from exactly the same point as does a well-known modern atheist. I have almost hesitated sometimes which writer to quote from, so identical are they in thought. Probably neither Dean Mansell nor Mr. Bradlaugh would thank me for bracketing their names, but I am forced to confess that the arguments used by the one to prove the endless absurdities into which we fall when we try to comprehend the nature of God are exactly the same arguments that are used by the other to prove that God, as believed in by the Orthodox, cannot exist. I quote, however, exclusively from the Dean, because it is at once novel and agreeable to find oneself sheltered by Mother Church at the exact moment when one is questioning her very foundations, and also because the Dean's name carries with it so orthodox an odour that his authority will tell where the same words from any of those who are outside the pale of orthodoxy would be regarded with suspicion. Nevertheless, I wish to state plainly that a more atheistical book than these Bampton lectures, at least in the earlier part of it, I have never read. And had its title-page borne the name of any well-known free-thinker, it would have been received in the religious world with a storm of indignation. The first definition laid down by the orthodox as a characteristic of God is that he is an infinite being. There is but one living and true God of infinite power, etc. Article of Religion, Part 1. It has been said that infinite only means indefinite, but I must protest against this weakening of a well-defined theological term. The term infinite has always been understood to mean far more than indefinite. It literally means boundless. The infinite has no limitations, no possible restrictions, no circumference. People who do not think about the meaning of the words they use speak very freely and familiarly of the infinitude of God, as though the term implied no inconsistency. Deny that God is infinite, and you are at once called an atheist. But press your opponent into a definition of the term, and you will generally find that he does not know what he is talking about. Dean Mansell points out, with his accurate habit of mind, all that this attribute of God implies, and it would be well if those who believe in an infinite God would try and realise what they express. Half the battle of free thought will be won when people attach a definite meaning to the terms they use. The infinite has no bounds, then the finite cannot exist. Why? because in the very act of acknowledging any existence beside the infinite one you limit the infinite. 
by saying this is not god you at once make him finite because you set a bound to his nature you distinguish between him and something else and by the very act you limit him that which is not he is as a rock which checks the waves of the ocean in that spot a limit is found and in finding a limit the infinite is destroyed the orthodox may retort this is only a matter of terms but it is well to force them into realising the dogmas which they thrust on our acceptance under such awful penalties for rejection i know what an infinite god implies and as apart from the universe i feel compelled to deny the possibility of his existence surely it is fair that the orthodox should also know what the words they use mean on this head and give up the term if they cling to a personal god distinct from creation further and here i quote dean mansell the infinite must be conceived as containing within itself the sum not only of all actual but of all possible modes of being if any possible mode can be denied of it it is capable of becoming more than it now is and such a capability is a limitation the hiatus refers to the absolute being of god which it is better to consider separately an unrealized possibility is necessarily a relation and a limit thus is orthodoxy crushed by the powerful logic of its own champion god is infinite then in that case everything that exists is god all phenomena are modes of the divine being there is literally nothing which is not god will the orthodox accept this position it lands them it is true in the most extreme pantheism but what of that they believe in an infinite god and they are therefore necessarily pantheists if they object to this they must give up the idea that their god is infinite at all there is no halfway position open to them he is infinite or finite which again god is before all things he is the only absolute being dependent on nothing outside himself all that is not god is relative that is to say that god exists alone and is not necessarily related to anything else the orthodox even believe that god did at some former period which is not a period they say because time then was not however at that hazy time he did exist alone i e as what is called an absolute being this conception is necessary for all who in any sense believe in a creator thou in thy far eternity didst live and love alone so sings a christian minstrel and one of the arguments put forward for a trinity is that a plurality of persons is necessary in order that god may be able to love at the time when he was alone into this point however i do not now enter but what does this absolute imply a simple impossibility of creation just as does the infinite for creation implies that the relative is brought into existence and thus the absolute is destroyed here again the pantheistic hypothesis seems forced upon us we can think of creation only as a change in the condition of that which already exists and thus the creature is conceivable only as a phenomenal mode of the being of the creator thus once more looms up the dreaded spectre of pantheism the dreary desolation of a pantheistic wilderness and who is the moses who has led us into this desert it is a leader of orthodoxy 
a dignitary of the church, it is Dean Mansell, who stretches out his hand to the universe and says, This is thy God, O Israel. The two highest attributes of God land us, then, in the most thorough pantheism. Further, before remarking on the other divine attributes, I would challenge the reader to pause and try to realise this infinite and absolute being. That a man can be conscious of the infinite is, then, a supposition which, in the very terms in which it is expressed, annihilates itself. The infinite, if it is to be conceived at all, must be conceived as potentially everything, and actually nothing. For, if there is anything in general which it cannot become, it is thereby limited, and if there is anything in particular which it actually is, it is thereby excluded from being any other thing. But again it must also be conceived as actually everything and potentially nothing, for an unrealised potentiality is likewise a limitation. If the infinite can be, in the future, that which is, is not, in the present, it is by that very possibility marked out as incomplete and capable of a higher perfection. If it is actually everything, it possesses no characteristic feature by which it can be distinguished from anything else, and discerned as an object of consciousness. I think, then, that we must be content, on the showing of Dr. Mansell, to allow that God is, in his own nature, from this point of view, quite beyond the grasp of our faculties. As regards us, he does not exist, since he is indistinguishable and undiscernible. Well might the Church exclaim, Save me from my friends, when a dean acknowledges that her God is a self-contradictory phantom. Oddly enough, however, the Church likes it, and accepts this fatal championship. I might have put this argument wholly in my own words, for the subject is familiar to every one who has tried to gain a distinct idea of the being who is called God, but I have preferred to back my own opinions with the authority of so orthodox a man as Dean Mansell, trusting that, by so doing, the orthodox may be forced to see where the logic carries them. All who are interested in this subject should study his lectures carefully. There is really no difficulty in following them. If the student will take the trouble of mastering once, for all the terms he employs, the book was lent to me years ago by a clergyman, and did more than any other book I know to make me what is called an infidel. It proves to demonstration the impossibility of our having any logical, reasonable, and definite idea of God, and the utter hopelessness of trying to realise his existence. It seems necessary here to make a short digression to explain, for the benefit of those who have not read the book from which I have been quoting, how Dean Mansell escaped becoming an atheist. It is a curious fact that the last part of this book is as remarkable for its assumptions as is the earlier portion its pitiless logic. When he ought in all reason to say, We can know nothing and therefore can believe nothing, he says instead, We can know nothing and therefore let us take revelation for granted. An atheistic reasoner suddenly startles us by becoming a devout Christian. The apparent enemy of the faithful is transformed into an angel of light. The existence of God is inconceivable by the reason, and therefore the only ground that can be taken for accepting one representation of it rather than another is that one is revealed and the other not revealed. It is the acknowledgment of a previously formed determination to believe at any cost. It is a wail of helplessness, the very apotheosis of despair. We cannot have history, so let us believe a fairy tale. 
we can discover nothing, so let us assume anything. We cannot find truth, so let us take the first myth that comes to hand. Here I feel compelled to part company with the Dean, and to leave him to believe in, to adore, and to love, that which he has himself designated as indistinguishable and undiscernible. It may be an act of faith, but it is a crucifixion of intellect. It may be a satisfaction to the yearnings of the heart, but it dethrones reason, and tramples it in the dust. We proceed in our study of the attributes of God. He is represented as the supreme will, the supreme intelligence, the supreme love. As the supreme will, what do we mean by will? Surely, in the usual sense of the word, a will implies the power and the act of choosing. Two paths are open to us, and we will walk in one rather than in the other. But can we think of power of choice in connection with God? Of two courses open to us, one must needs be better than the other, else they would be indistinguishable and be only one. Perfection implies that the higher course will always be taken. What then becomes of the power of choice? We choose because we are imperfect. We do not know everything which bears on the matter on which we are about to exercise our will. If we knew everything, we should inevitably be driven in one direction, that which is the best possible course. The greater the knowledge, the more circumscribed the will, the nobler the nature, the more impossible the lower course. Spinoza points out most clearly that the divinity could not have made things otherwise than they are made, because any change in his action would imply a change in his nature. God, above all, must be bound by necessity. If we believe in a God at all, we must surely ascribe to him perfection of wisdom and perfection of goodness. We are then forced to conceive of him, however strange it may sound to those who believe, not only without seeing but also without thinking, as without will, because he must always necessarily pursue the course which is wisest and best. As the Supreme Intelligence Again the first question is, what do we mean by intelligence? In the usual sense of the word, intelligence implies the exercise of the various intellectual faculties, and gathers up into one word the ideas of perception, comparison, memory, judgment, and so on. The very enumeration of these faculties is sufficient to show how utterly inappropriate they are when thought of in connection with God. Does God perceive what he did not know before? Does he compare one fact with another? Does he draw conclusions from this correlation of perceptions, and thus judge what is best? Does he remember, as we remember, long past events? Perfect wisdom excludes from the idea of God all that is called intelligence in man. It involves unchangeableness, complete stillness. It implies a knowledge of all that is knowable. It includes an acquaintance with every fact, an acquaintance which has never been less in the past, and can never be more in the future. The reception at any time of a new thought or a new idea is impossible to perfection, for if it could ever be added to in the future, it is necessarily something less than perfect in the past. As the supreme love, we come here to the darkest problem of existence. Love, ruler of the world, permeated through and through with pain and sorrow and sin. Love, mainspring of a nature whose cruelty is sometimes appalling. Love, think of the martyrdom of man. Love, follow the history of the church. Love, 
study the annals of the slave trade. Love? Walk the courts and alleys of our towns. It is of no use to try and explain away these things, or cover them up with a veil of silence. It is better to look them fairly in the face, and test our creeds by inexorable facts. It is foolish to keep a tender spot which may not be handled, for a spot which gives pain when it is touched implies the presence of a disease. Wiser far is it to press firmly against it, and, if danger lurk there, to use the probe or the knife. We have no right to pick out all that is noblest and fairest in man, to project these qualities into space and call them God. We only thus create an ideal figure, a purified, ennobled, magnified man. We have no right to shut our eyes to the sad river de la Medée, and leave out of our conceptions of the Creator the larger half of his creation. If we are to discover the worker from his works, we must not pick and choose amid those works, we must take them as they are, good and bad. If we only want an ideal, let us by all means make one, and call it God. If thus we can reach it, better, but if we want a true indication, we must take all facts into account. If God is to be considered as the author of the universe, and we are to learn of him through his works, then we must make room in our conceptions of him for the avalanche and the earthquake, for the tiger's tooth and the serpent's fang, as well as for the tenderness of woman and the strength of man, the radiant glory of the sunshine on the golden harvest, and the gentle lapping of the summer waves on the gleaming shingled beach. Note by the Editor I know it is usual for the orthodox, when vindicating the moral character of their God, to say, all the evil that exists is of man, all that God has done is only good, but granting, which facts do not substantiate, that man is the only author of the sorrow and the wrong that abound in the world, it is difficult to see how the Creator can be free from imputation. Did not God, according to orthodoxy, plan all things with an infallible perception that the events foreseen must occur? Was not this accurate prescience based upon the inflexibility of God's eternal purposes? As, then, the purposes, in the order of nature, at least preceded the prescience, and formed the groundwork of it, man has become extensively the instrument of doing mischief in the world, simply because the God of the Christian Church did not choose to prevent man from being bad. In other words, man is as he is, by the ordained design of God, and therefore God is responsible for all the suffering, shame, and error spread by human agency, so that the Christian apology for God in connection with the spectacle of evil falls to pieces. End of chapter 10, part 1